Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present William Rivers Pitt, senior editor and lead columnist with Truthout.org, who discusses the House Progressive Caucus victory in the internal Democratic Party battle over President Biden's human infrastructure bill. Tony Ingrafia, professor emeritus of civil and environmental engineering at Cornell University, who talks about the links between bank fossil fuel investments, fracking, and the climate crisis. And Kevin Gostola, managing editor of the news website shadowproof.com, who considers the significance of a recent investigation that exposed a CIA plot to kidnap or kill WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. The Biden administration caused a big stir when it signed a deal to provide Australia with the technology needed to build eight nuclear submarines to patrol the Indo-Pacific region to counter China's growing clout. French President Emmanuel Macron protested as it voided France's contract to build Australia 12 diesel-powered subs. Asia observers say a new U.S.-U.K.-Australia security pact will be seen in Beijing as a threat and is likely to trigger an expensive and dangerous regional arms race. But little-noticed news reports say Brazil may very well launch nuclear submarines much sooner than Australia, possibly in the early 2030s. According to The Economist, when the submarines are launched into the South Atlantic Ocean, Brazil would become the first non-nuclear nation to build a nuclear-powered submarine. Brazil started its nuclear program in the 1970s and 80s, creating secret centrifuges, but the program was put on hold after the end of military rule. Nuclear research was revived 10 years ago under Workers' Party President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Brazil will produce nuclear fuel, but at a level of enrichment much lower than required for nuclear weapons. Non-proliferation experts praise Brazil for running an open, responsible program, but the submarine, when operational, promises to dramatically alter the balance of power in the South Atlantic. Five years after the historic Colombia peace deal, which ended decades of civil war, farmers have returned to growing coca leaves in the rainforest, reviving the lucrative cocaine trade. Conservative President Ivan Duque is threatening to renew aerial spraying of coca plantations, which was halted in 2015 after the World Health Organization labeled the herbicide glyphosate as a probable cancer-causing agent. According to Al Jazeera, aerial fumigation caused contamination of rural water supplies and harmful health effects in isolated farm communities. Under the peace agreement, promises were made to farmers to invest in alternative crops and build roads to get produce to market. These promises were largely unfulfilled by the Duque government, which is allied with large landowners. Only 4% of the peace deal's land reform commitments were completed. Meanwhile, rebel groups and drug gangs have increased threats of violence in coca-growing regions. Today, 
Colombia remains the world's largest producer of cocaine, which is exported to 20 million users in the United States and Europe. A new international narcotics control strategy document by the U.S. State Department endorsed renewing aerial spraying. But farmers who made the transition to growing legal crops like yucca, pineapple, and passion fruit worry that resuming fumigation will destroy their crops and livelihoods. California's agricultural heartland, including the San Joaquin Valley, home to almond groves, fruit, and vegetable fields, was hard hit by the summer's record heat wave and second major drought in a decade. It also exposed the water divide between poor Latino farmworker communities and powerful agribusinesses, which consume nearly 90% of the region's water. In the aftermath of record heat, 700 drinking water wells went dry across California's towns populated by farmworker families, mostly in the San Joaquin Valley. This was a 725% increase in wells going dry over a year earlier. According to Mother Jones magazine, there are two sources of water in the San Joaquin Valley, snowmelt from the Sierra Mountains and underground aquifers. With climate change, snowmelt has dramatically declined, and as nut farmers dug deeper into water aquifers, shallow community wells went dry. The effects of the drought have disproportionately fallen on farmworker communities whose drinking water has been contaminated by agricultural toxins such as nitrates and pesticides. The Pacific Institute, a California-based water think tank, estimates that more than 40 percent of the 1,200 supply wells for one million people will likely go partially or fully dry by 2040. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Last week, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi announced that the House would vote on the Senate's $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill by September 30th, but leaders of the 95-member House Progressive Caucus warned that unless the original deal was honored to link the bipartisan bill and the larger $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill together, enough of their members would vote to kill the bill favored by conservative Democrats. Progressives feared that if the bipartisan bill was passed separately, they would lose any leverage they had to pass President Biden's popular Build Back Better infrastructure plan. In the end, Biden backed the progressives' call for the two bills to proceed together, and House Speaker Pelosi delayed the planned vote until October 31st. But while progressives won this round in the infrastructure fight, Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema of Arizona have staked out positions opposing the $3.5 trillion bill that requires all Democrats' support in the reconciliation process that bypasses a Republican filibuster. The reality of an evenly split Senate now requires all sides to engage in difficult negotiations to arrive at a lower price tag to win passage. While Joe Manchin has stated his bottom line is $1.5 trillion for the bill, President Biden has floated the figure of $2.1 trillion and expressed optimism that Democrats would reach an agreement 
to pass both infrastructure packages, no matter how long it might take. Your reporter spoke with William Rivers Pitt, senior editor and lead columnist with Truthout.org, who discusses the Progressive Caucus victory in the House and the corporate media spin on coverage of the debate. President Biden came down the mountain and, to my personal great surprise, joined forces with the Congressional Progressive Caucus to make sure that the infrastructure bill remains coupled with with the Build Back Better Act, which is the human infrastructure bill. Making sure that the first is connected to the second is how the second survives at all, because um, they love to call them moderates, but they're conservative Democrats and they're from conservative Democratic districts. And they were, for 2018 and 2019, Nancy Pelosi's most favored garden. And these people turned on their own party this is worth underscoring. The very people that Nancy Pelosi spent so much time uh, defending and protecting, particularly through the impeachments, are the ones who try to blow up what is the Democratic Party agenda, mainly because they are feeding off of massive amounts of pharmaceutical and medical industry dollars. President Biden showed up at the 11th hour and demanded that these two bills be passed basically simultaneously and that the Build Back Better Act be passed first before the infrastructure bill. The infrastructure bill has already passed the Senate, and it passed like 68 to something. All of these quote-unquote moderate Democrats are desperate to have the infrastructure bill passed because it allows them to go back to their districts and say, look, bipartisanship, I voted with the Republicans. You can vote for me, and it's okay, and I'm not a socialist, whatever, whatever. Nancy Pelosi uh, last Monday caved into the pressure that was being put upon her by people like Joe Manchin, uh, Kirsten Sinema, and this, this cohort of pharmaceutical Dems, and set the vote for Thursday. The Congressional Progressive Caucus had vowed to vote it down and put uh, somewhere between 20, it's hard to get the number right, but somewhere between 25 and 40 no votes were on the table. So she ended up having to pull the vote on Thursday. President showed up and sided with the Congressional Progressive Caucus. The entire vote got punted to Halloween. And in the meantime, they're going to have time to finish drafting the Build Back Better Act with a number that Joe Manchin now has said he's finally willing to agree with. After weeks and weeks of grinding teeth, the actual negotiations can actually begin. In your recent story titled, Corporate Media Wants You to Think Biden Lost to Progressives on Infrastructure, you emphasize the fact that the corporate media has really spun this story in such a way that many people uh, reading or watching the coverage will take away the distorted view that somehow these wild, wild-eyed wild radicals, the progressives in the House and Senate, were out to uh, hurt Joe Biden and his agenda, when in fact that $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill was Joe Biden's agenda. When, this, when the president of the United States comes down the mountain and goes to Capitol Hill and lays his hand on the shoulder of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and says, I'm with you, how these people thought that they could spin that into the Congressional Progressive Caucus is destroying the president's agenda. Is it, it, it's, it's miraculous thinking. You, you points for trying, I suppose. In your recent article, you focus on the coverage of the Washington Post and Politico actually uh, 
juxtaposing the advertisements for Big Pharma right on the same pages as these you articles, can't miss right? It. It's a little button. They, they, these guys might as well be walking around wearing signs. Political yeah. Post was it, 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 it was their it was their pulse, their weekend big breakdown, and it gets to the first paragraph where it tells you why the Progressive Caucus is awful and everything they're doing is terrible. And then there's this little icon button for PHRMA, which is the Medical Research Association of America, one of the largest lobbying groups for the pharmaceutical and medical industry that's out there. And it's right like it's right there underneath the first paragraph. The second article, the one from the day before, was brought to us by Blue Cross and Blue Shield, although by the time we went to publication, that advertisement had changed to Amazon because David Sirota and his uh, fantastic people over at the Daily Poster had underscored the fact that these, you know, flagrant, flagrant pro-pharmaceutical industry articles were out there. So they, they went and they, they they changed it to Amazon, which, you know, I can't, I'm not going to say if that's better or worse, but it certainly doesn't have anything to do with the argument at present. You spend so much time uh, in this job. Uh, beating the bushes, trying to get the actual information free from manipulation and money, and they spent so much time covering their tracks. And then an enormous piece of legislation, like the Build Back Better Act, comes down the pike and actually reaches the point where it is trembling on the verge of being reality. And they've broken cover. They're not even camouflaging themselves anymore. That was William Rivers Pitt, Senior Editor and Lead Columnist with Truthout.org. Find more analysis and commentary on the debate over President Biden's proposed Build Back Better Human Infrastructure Bill by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Under President Obama's all-of-the-above energy strategy, in the four years that follow with President Trump's aggressive promotion of fossil fuels, Production and distribution of shale gas through the process of fracking has sent methane emissions soaring. So-called natural gas is almost all methane. Through frack gas pipelines and liquefied natural gas or LNG export terminals, the U.S. has pushed the distribution of methane around the country and around the world. Tony Ingrafia, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Cornell University, began his academic career working in collaboration with the oil and gas industry. But as horizontal drilling into shale formations to release gas, a method known as fracking took hold, he realized the problems it was creating for the global climate. He and his colleagues at Cornell then conducted groundbreaking research, showing that through leaks and deliberate releases, methane is far more damaging to the climate than coal. He later co-authored several papers demonstrating how most countries around the world could get to an almost 100% clean energy economy. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhus interviewed Ingrafia as an expert witness for a People's Climate Tribunal that took place in Wilmington, Delaware on September 29th. The tribunal preceded a trial of 15 elders, including Tuhus, charged with disorderly conduct for their protest that blocked the entrance to the credit card headquarters of J.P. Morgan Chase in Wilmington last June. Here, Ingrafia explains the role of methane in the energy matrix and why he believes big banks are complicit in the climate crisis. 
Methane, as is well known in the scientific community, is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So the advent of production of gas and oil from shale was proverbially burning our climate candle from both ends. It was producing vast new quantities of fossil fuels that when burned produce carbon dioxide, that's inevitable, but it was also producing methane and carbon dioxide and methane taken together are by far the most important greenhouse gases. Tony and Grafia, my understanding is that methane is very damaging, especially over a short time frame, but because it dissipates quicker than CO2, Tackling methane pollution now would have the biggest impact on the climate crisis. Is that true? That is absolutely scientifically true, correct, and factual. In fact, in our 2011 paper, uh, my colleagues uh, Bob Howarth and Renee Santorio said exactly that. We said that whereas the rest of the world seemed to be focused on a hundred-year period of judgment for a greenhouse gas, whether it be carbon dioxide, methane, or any other greenhouse gas, we felt that that was inappropriate, given the imperative of the rapid increase in climate change we were seeing even 10 years ago, and we advocated for a shorter period of time to judge the effectiveness of various greenhouse gases, especially methane. And at that point in time, the U.S. government and most international entities were judging methane on the basis of a one, we have 100 years to worry about this problem. Well, here we are today, 2021. And for those of you who have been following the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, its most recent report published earlier this month said exactly what we were saying then. The last remaining dial, knob, rheostat, control on climate change available to us is control of methane for the reason that you just stated. Carbon dioxide, once it gets into the atmosphere, is there for thousands of years. If we were to stop emission of all carbon dioxide on the face of the earth today, it would have no effect on changing climate for the foreseeable future, certainly in our lifetimes and the lifetimes of our children. But if we were to drastically reduce methane emissions, both accidental and purposeful, we would have an immediate impact. And it's according to the IPCC and the thousands of scientists and engineers who wrote that report, the only remaining hope we have of keeping climate warming, global warming, below or close to the 1.5 degree centigrade mark is to drastically reduce methane in the atmosphere. Then let me ask you, if you could give your expert opinion on the importance of banking institutions, and especially J.P. Morgan Chase, because it is the largest funder of fossil fuel projects, gas and oil, not much coal, but a lot of oil and gas projects, Do you think they bear some responsibility for where we find ourselves at this point? Absolutely, yes. The oil and gas industry, especially the shale oil and gas industry, does not pay for itself. Every time a new shale gas well is drilled, it costs the company that drills it, the operators, something between 10 and $20 million. They borrow that money from big banks. Big banks take our investments, your investment, my investment, our savings, our retirement plans, and they turn that money into shale gas and oil wells. And for reasons I just said, we can't keep doing that. We have only about a decade left to have substantial reductions in both methane and carbon dioxide quantities in the atmosphere. And the only way to do those reductions is to drastically reduce the drilling for and the production of 
and the burning of and the emission of greenhouse gases from oil and gas. So banks like the one you just mentioned and all the others that are the big loan agencies are exacerbating, aiding, and abetting climate catastrophe. It's an immoral investment of our money by them in the continuing development of the oil and gas industry. That was Tony Ingrafia, Professor Emeritus at Cornell University. Learn more about the role of methane production in the climate crisis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. A new Yahoo News investigation has revealed that the CIA, under Donald Trump, had discussed detailed plans at the highest level in 2017 to kidnap or assassinate WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who had taken refuge in Ecuador's embassy in London five years earlier. Sources for the story included a senior U.S. counterintelligence official and more than 30 other U.S. officials, eight of whom confirmed details of the abduction plan. According to these officials, the plan discussed breaking into Ecuador's embassy, which is protected by diplomatic immunity, and forcibly taking Assange out. One informant recounted a meeting in the spring of 2017 at which President Trump had asked if the CIA could assassinate Assange and provide options about how this could be done. Trump has since denied the story. Mike Pompeo, who Trump appointed CIA director in January 2017, said publicly that targeting Julian Assange and WikiLeaks was the equivalent of taking action against a hostile intelligence service. Top U.S. intelligence officials wanted to grant themselves the power to determine who is and who is not a journalist and label some reporters they believed were agents of a foreign power as information brokers. Your reporter spoke with Kevin Gostola, managing editor of the news website Shadowproof.com, who discusses the significance of this story on the CIA plot targeting Assange and the ominous threat to press freedom. What's important to say now, uh, more than a week after this story was published, is there's not a single report you can point to pushing back on the things that these government officials, former government officials, said to the Yahoo News reporters, which is that all the way up to the highest levels, there were discussions about extreme measures that could be employed against Julian Assange and other staff within WikiLeaks as well as associates who may have been working on publication and materials. There's over 30 former intelligence officials as well as Trump administration officials, and it even says eight of them describe the kind of plots that were being discussed within the CIA to these Yahoo News reporters. Just to say, this is a fairly solidly reported article making significant allegations against former CIA director Mike Pompeo that he was um, entertaining discussions about plotting to assassinate Julian Assange, seeking to find out if there was any legal authority for which he could order such an assassination operation. Uh, But then I think more plausibly, 
trying to figure out if they could conduct a kidnapping uh, or a rendition operation to snatch Julian Assange from the Ecuador embassy and put him on a plane and bring him back to the United States. Um, and then it discusses how they could take offensive operations against WikiLeaks, a way they categorized WikiLeaks as a hostile entity, which we knew uh, that was something that the CIA had wanted to do. We just didn't know what that label meant because in his first public remarks, CIA Director Mike Pompeo said to the world that they considered WikiLeaks a non-state hostile intelligence agency. But again, we didn't know what kind of policy or what, 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 what that meant. The CIA and the U.S. government had differentiated between journalism and Julian Assange, calling him an information broker. Also in that category was Glenn Greenwald, one of the founders of The Intercept, former Guardian columnist, and Laura Poitras, a award-winning film documentary maker. What is the threat to journalism here as this CIA plot to kidnap or kill Julian Assange is exposed? I think the threat is, is, is very severe. Uh, first off, because we aren't seeing any political outrage, I mean, we haven't really heard a peep from any representative or senator in Congress who read this report? I mean, where's the alarm? Where's the where's the shock that this is what is being considered? I mean, think about it. we read a report that says agents of the CIA were plotting to kill a journalist, or seriously asked themselves, would this be legal to kill a journalist? Which you know is not a question that should even be contemplated. There's no outrage. So what does that say? Does that give a green light to the security services of other countries? to plot their own operations against journalists. I mean, we're always quick to condemn the countries we see as adversaries for how they mistreat and abuse journalists. But do we really have any credibility to lecture any other country when this is what we did to Julian Assange and he's, you know, he's still in jail and these charges have not been dropped by the Biden administration? I mean, I think what's really at stake here is the, is the fact that there are tremendous problems in countries around the world with press freedom, and the U.S. can't really speak to them right now without authoritarians or tyrants saying, well, I don't have to listen to you. Julian Assange is in jail. He's being held in a British jail cell. Leaving aside the excuses for the moment, the fact is these are secrecy laws that apply to U.S. citizens. Typically, people who sign non-disclosure agreements who work for the U.S. government, and none of that applies to Julian Assange. He's never worked at a U.S. government agency. He's never been a contractor for a U.S. government agency. He's not a U.S. citizen, so he should not have to follow any of these quote-unquote espionage laws. Yet, here we are. We're still talking about this case. That was Kevin Gostola, managing editor of the news website Shadowproof.com and co-host of the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. Learn more about the CIA's plot to kidnap or kill Julian Assange by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WBDY in Binghamton, New York, FRSC in Santa Cruz, California, KMXT in Kodiak, Alaska, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.